He was slinging puns at a B&B when he had an epiphany. And make a part in about time too about not playing the NDE. It was free for all, and I heard him say he bought my Borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable AMs. Hey, hello, my name's Spencer, aka Free Thrall, and this is Keep Off the Borderlands. Now, I did say that in this episode I would talk a little about what I've been doing over on Itch, but I might leave that for another episode, as a guy called George Patterson contacted me. He'd created a bestiary, and he asked me if I wouldn't mind taking a look at it. So there's that. I also have a few calls that I want to address, and I think that will be me done. So, what do you got? It's Jules from Jules from NZ here, dude. I finally get the joke. I finally get it. The title of your podcast, Keep Off the Borderlands. I've just been researching Eric Holmes and like way back because I got sucked into researching Xenopus because um, Xenopus Tower is mentioned in Ghosts of Saltmarsh and I'm gone way too hard into the background of this and, and Eric Holmes is right there and I was reading and I was like, oh my God, there's a thing here that says keep on the borderlands. It's taken me a while, dude, but I'm there. I, I got it. I respect it. It's a great pun. That's that's really all I have to say today. <laughs> Love your work. Bye. Kiora Jules. That was the incredible Jules Burgesser there of the Jules from NZ podcast, DM for Hire. And uh, what I have to say to that is, welcome to the party, pal. It's funny. I just, I assume that everyone gets the joke because back in the day, as any long-term listener will know, I wasn't a D&D guy. I was introduced to RPGs through Merp, dabbled with a little bit of Call of Cthulhu, with one unsatisfying session of Redbox basic D&D. But I was aware of the keep on the borderlands, and I just assume that everybody else is. If you don't know what the keep on the borderlands is, it was the adventure module that was included with D&D basic set between 79 and 81, I think, 81, 82. And it was probably the first adventure that most old school players ever went on. A legendary adventure module. And a little Google tells me it was voted the seventh greatest D&D adventure of all time by Dungeon Magazine in 2004. So, if that was a mystery to anyone, I'm glad I was able to clear that up. Thank you, Jules. Thanks for calling in. It's really, really good to hear from you. Oh, oh, Spencer. Easter eggs, Easter eggs. How, how many impersonation Easter eggs did you have in that last episode? Uh, uh, let me go. Uh, no cheating, no googling. Honest. Um, first one. Um, one foot in the grave. Uh, uh, is it Victor Meldrew? Is it 
Richard Wilson. Is that? Yeah, second one. Um, Safinio. Not really an Easter egg. You'd already said that. Um, Jack Nicholson. Mars Attacks. Um, Scottish guy. No idea. No, I'm going to kick myself for that one. Um, ah, uh, the Cowardly Lion. Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you'll have to tell me how many I've got if I've missed any, mate. Have you and Safinio had a word with each other about Easter eggs? Because I'm sure Safinio was dropping Sesame Street Easter eggs in his last episode. Oh, man. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and... Listen to all your back catalogs now. See if there was any Easter eggs, man. Easter eggs. <laughs> Thank you, Safer. Thanks for playing along there. That's Safer from Safer Fantasy Crafting. And um, yeah, it probably wasn't fair putting in a impression of Victor Meldrew, One Foot in the Grave, something that I don't imagine many Americans have seen. But um, I was so pleased with my... History is written by the Victor's joke that I, I couldn't resist it. So apologies, Liren, if you were a, a little baffled by that one. As for the, the Scottish chap, um, well, you're probably aware that that line was from Macbeth. And originally, I was going to do it as Ian McKellen, you know. It is a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury. But then I figured it was too good an opportunity to not drop in my very generic and possibly highly offensive Scottish accent for that one. So, full points to you, Safer. I only wish I'd thought up a prize. Thank you very much for your message. Really enjoyed that. Cheers. Hey, old man, Jason here. I'm not just using old man in the um, Red Grant, you know, sense as he's speaking to James Bond, not old man as in, you know, you're elderly. But anyhow, I, I hope it... I thought I had left you a message about the OSR and inclusivity and all that, but maybe I called it into Joe. I'm about to listen to his podcast, so maybe I called the wrong... Well, not the wrong, but maybe I... I know I call. I think I called him, but maybe I didn't follow up with the call to you, so I apologize about that. Um, and, and I've seen other groups be non-inclusive, so yeah, I think it's definitely j- just humans are humans, and they tend to be tribal and not like to hear things opposed to what they like. As far as editing podcasts and changing, you know, your back things, I think Liren summed up my thoughts. Appro- you know, she and I are on the same sheet of music. Hey Jason, Jason Connolly there of Nerds RPG Variety Cast, referencing uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service there. <laughs> and I've got to say, I'm feeling pretty old. Yeah, as as far as those topics are concerned, I think I've, <laughs> I think I've spent enough time dwelling on that. So I don't really have anything to add there. But as always, I appreciate your calls. And I'm glad to see the old liquid breakfast regime is still in full force there. Cheers. Hey Spencer, Daniel from Bandscape calling in about your Dice Rolls Logicals uh, episode. You're talking about uh, PBTA and Dungeon World. 
I mean, I am also not an expert. And in fact, I, I, you know, I read the rules. I watched some live plays. I was really into the idea of it. And I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it. So I ended up playing in a game at a convention, uh, a game of Dungeon World that it was. And it was really fun. And what I said to, you know, I told the guy, the, the GM, I said, I've never played before and I'm kind of curious, you know, um, I'm Dungeon World curious, I guess. And uh, so after we were talking about it and he said, well, what was it like? And I said, well, it was just like playing D&D. I, I honestly don't see how it's more or less story game than a regular D&D game. There are certain rules in it that help control things or maybe put things into the hands of the players or I should say the rules aren't as open to interpretation. I got cut off there, so it's in, and I don't even know if that was the right way to say it. It's not so much that things aren't open to interpretation, but for instance, this is the, the classic, which I think a lot of people like, and, and I did too, actually, in the game, was that if you use the move find out info or whatever it's called and you succeed, it, the move itself literally tells you what you get. You can ask two questions of the GM that they must answer, that kind of thing. Versus, let's say in D&D, where if you did a search check, right, the DM would just decide what you see. So it's kind of more player-facing, I guess. That's the difference. So to me, that is a little bit meta because it comes out of the game, right? Uh, you're literally looking at a rule going, no, you have to tell me these two things. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, I would say, though, for me, it just wasn't my bag. That was Daniel Norton of Bandits Keep there, and thank you very much, Daniel. Um, I think your I think your experience of reading the rules is very similar to my own, although I haven't had the opportunity to play it. I'm interested that, despite you saying you enjoyed it, you still felt it wasn't really your bag. Um, I think there, yeah, there's certainly a difference in how those rules are presented and. It sounds like how they're implemented at the table, how they actually work around the table. And it does seem that the emphasis is sort of shifted there. There certainly seems to be stuff going on between the players at the table that would otherwise be occurring between the characters in the world, if that makes sense. And I've got a few calls from Safinio, actually, from Alone in the Labyrinth, talking a bit about that. I might pop up in between some of these messages to address some of the points that Safinio's making. Take it away, Safinio. That's uh, remarkably insightful, Spencer. Um, hmm, I don't know what to make of these impersonations. Uh, okay, so first of all, uh, I honestly thought Barney was doing Bob Dylan at first. Um, sort of like uh, late sixties era, Dylan when he's just on <laughs> going nasally. <laughs> um, I think actually he sounded like Kate Blanchett doing Bob Dylan in uh, "I'm Not There." Is it "I'm Not There"? The multi, the ensemble cast kind of Dylan biopic that's not a biopic. Um, yeah, it sounded like Kate Blanchett playing Bob Dylan doing a impression of Marlon Brando and as for the impersonation of me that uh, uh, I'm not gonna lie it it was it was pretty convincing thank you Safinho I think you're being a little bit generous there regarding my 
impersonation. As for as for Barney's, uh, maybe a little less charitable. You're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect the bill. Actually, that sounds more like Bullwinkle J. Moose. Um, and I just wanted to add something to, well, <laughs> the reason you did that impression, I think. Um, I've also had very little involvement with PBTA, but to kind of pick up what Liren's saying, my understanding is metagaming is using player knowledge that characters don't have or players communicating ideas and suggestions for characters when the characters aren't able to communicate with each other. Things that happen outside of the f- the game world. I don't want to say fiction because it, it gets a bit blurry, but things that aren't occurring in the game world that do occur at the table um, and affect the the way players engage with that game world, um, which it sounds more complicated than it needs to be, I think. That's my understanding anyway. Whereas? Um, yeah, that's an important distinct. Well, an interesting distinction, I think, that you make there. Rather than being meta or in the fiction, actually meta or in world. I think that rephrasing does make it a little bit clearer as to what's being spoken about. Whereas, my understanding of, a, a, in quote, true unquote story game would be one in which that mechanic there is a meta mechanic for for affecting fiction in a way that's perhaps more powerful than metagaming like so so here's an example right that i can think of off the top of my head that's actually in an osr game which borrows a, a story game concept and that is um the thief in uh uh gobbling laws of gaming by arnold kemp one of the abilities they get is a package, which means whenever they arrive at a new town, they can say that at the local thieves' guild, someone has left them a package and they can pick that up. And then at any point during play, they can open that package and that will have an item inside it. But the item is not specified until they open it. So it's kind of like a Schrodinger's cat. It could be a cat. The point being it exists in this quantum state until at the desired point the player decides what it is right so they're they're twisting the fiction to make the story more interesting um and it's not explicitly a magical power it's not like a spell it's saying like oh this happened and another one from the same game and i'm using the story game examples from a game which isn't actually a story game would be the assassin who has the ability to drop out of play and then reappear at a later point in the game disguised as an NPC of their choice. So which means the the player removes their character, they might continue controlling another character, and uh, then the party, I don't know, fight their way through a dungeon, and then at the end there's the evil sorcerer who they're confronting, and at that point the player can then declare that, believe it or not, they were the evil sorcerer all along. Now, that doesn't mean that they were the evil sorcerer. Actually, it doesn't mean that they were the evil sorcerer all along. It means that the big bad at the end of the dungeon happens to be them and the real one is still at large and how that works out in the game is up to them. So that heavily shifts the fiction of the game. 
Whereas in a traditional game, the DM or an old school game, the DM creates a world which people explore and interact with, interact with within strictly defined parameters. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into like simulationist, gamist, narrativist kind of thing. I don't know how useful they are because I think all games have elements of all three to varying degrees. And players gen- generally like all three elements to varying degrees. Um, oh, now we're talking about Forge and that's real story game stuff. So I'm going to shut up. Chat later. Cheers, Spencer. Thank you, Safinio. That's some really helpful examples there, I think. And um, I've come across that, that idea you cite in Glog about the sort of undetermined equipment. And um, I'm not sure where I've where I've seen that before. I think I've seen it in a few different games. The idea that you, you your equipment is a number of undetermined items which aren't disclosed until you actually need them. So you've got six items and you get to a point where you need a piece of rope, reach in your bag, pull out the rope, and now you've got five undetermined items. If that makes sense. I'm Well, you explained it a lot better than I did. But yeah, using that as like um, an ability for the thief kind of takes it back in world because it strikes me as it's quite possible that a thief might have a bag of things and he's not really sure what's actually in the bag until he looks in it sort of taking a meta idea and putting it back in the world but thanks very much Safinio. actually i think there's one more message oh just time for one more thing and um that was that You've mentioned before, Spencer, that Questing Beast has done a couple of videos recently where he's got in other RPG designers and writers, creators, whatever. I was about to say influencers. That is just terrible. Um, <clears throat> shoot me if I ever use that word again, please. Um, but uh, there is a video up on Questing Beast, which I haven't watched yet, in which he sits down with three uh, RPG designers who are explicitly... Uh, story game makers so i'll be very very interesting interested i'd be very interesting if i watched that and find out what it was but i haven't so i'm not interesting but i am interested in finding out what um what the conversation is about so have a look at that uh you or anybody who's interested in finding out more about what story games mean and how they could relate to the osr thank you safinio and first of all can i say you are already extremely interesting don't need to watch any YouTube videos about that. But I have seen that conversation with Questing Beast talking to some story game creators. And that was an extremely interesting conversation, as is as are all the other conversations he's had in that series. Really interesting stuff if you just look at Questing Beast's channel there. But yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your call, Safinho. A couple of weeks ago, I was contacted by a George Patterson who'd created a rather interesting looking bestiary he kindly sent me a link to a copy and asked if i wouldn't mind reviewing it on the show 
And that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's entitled A Groat's Worth of Grotesques. And George describes it as a system-neutral, OSR-ish bestiary with an implied setting in the Baroque period. It is written in-world, the prose in part lifted from various historic sources, woven together to emulate a primary source. Same goes for the art, which is made of public domain collages with a little original work to tie it all together. I tried to make it feel like a 17th century document, weird, baldy and violent. It goes for high art, quoting Shakespeare and making collages with Rembrandt's etchings and goes for low art using 18th century street slang and illustrated with blood, little shit piles, farts and nudity. I've got to say that George sums that up really nicely there. Uh, it's a very accurate description of what he has put together. The cover is itself a collage of public domain art that gives you a good idea of what you're going to find inside. Now, I'm no expert on bestiaries, but there appear to be quite a fair few things in here that strike me as being quite unique, things that I've never heard of, at least. And um, I thought I would just have a quick browse through, read out a few of the entries, just to give you an idea of the, the flavour of this thing. Right, so let's have a look. A, A. Antichthonies. There is a great debate between learned people and the ignorant multitude. For the ignorant hold that if people are overspread on all parts upon the earth, how then that they who are opposite against us do not fall into the heavens? The people who live on the opposite side of the world, the Antipodes, are called Antichthonies. The lands that separate them from humans are treacherous and wild, but Antichthonies can somehow travel to all parts of the world because they are masters of enigmatic air wagons. Their manners and dress are strange to the greatest degree. They are particularly fond of consuming raw snake eggs and they wear masks at all hours, even while sleeping. They are enemies of the rules of propriety. They make no distinction between right and wrong and are always in secret complicity with malignant forces. Whenever a nation falls into disorder, the Antichthonies bear responsibility. It is no exaggeration that spies and mercenaries employed by Antichthonies are everywhere. On each entry, there are helpful notes in the margins suggesting how you might use creatures. There is a small chance that anyone working with or for the player characters is actually in league with the Antichthonies. The game master can determine this during an encounter with the Antichthonies. One out of 20 hireling slash allies are spies. No air wagon has ever been seen by human eyes and preferably they remain unseen and mysterious to the characters. However, the game master can choose to incorporate them into their setting and if this is the case, the author 
imagines them as flying machines along the design of da Vinci or de Bergerac. Right, let's have a look at B. Big Orn, a beast that devours quarrelling friends and lovers, and with so much quarrelling these days, is exceedingly well fed. Big Orn are as fat and full as you can imagine, with eyes as big as wicker baskets and teeth like bricks. They are patient, hiding amongst large rocks, despite their utter lack of resemblance, and are thus quite easy to spot. Upon hearing any sort of controversy, they will slowly rise to their feet and swallow the angriest or most disagreeable person. The magnitude of the disagreement is irrelevant. Some unlucky folk have gone missing after being unable to settle on oats or peas for lunch. The cries of those it has eaten can be heard inside its belly. Bighorns appear mostly where disagreements are common, such as crossroads, temples, areas of labour and households. And uh, the note in the margin, even if players know they are near a bighorn, they will argue about something eventually, a monster that creates a challenge at the table. Right, let's have a look at C. Corpse men. Clattering white teeth, deadly-faced, grim, glaring, bloody and unapproachable drinkers of black blood. Corpse men and corpse women smell strongly of the putrefaction of flesh, sulphur and mercury vapour. They are the end result of a disease that spreads by a flux of invisible spiculae, which attach to the organs and prevent the nourishment of the soul until it leaves the body. The initial stage of the disease causes death, followed in one day's time by resurrection as a corpse man or corpse woman. There are two principal types of these creatures distinguished by their colour. The yellow corpsemen and corpse women have a body that smokes as wet hands do in winter. They are as ignorant as a common beast and can think nothing more sophisticated than harming any living person in its sight. They will dress in armour and wield weapons if any are available. The green corpse men and corpse women are quick and cunning. They are not so bestial as their yellow brethren and are capable of deceit and disguise. They have horrifying venomous nails which freeze the sinews and tighten the throat to the point of strangulation. No, they usually attack in numbers, sometimes exceedingly great numbers, that the characters have no chance of defeating. And, um, well, I, I really like this. The in-world style of the writing, the sheer variety of the public domain pieces, I mean, probably more than a couple of hundred pieces here. And unlike most books that feature public domain art, I think I only recognise two or three of the images that I think I've seen before. Really, really flavourful stuff. And if anyone's looking for something a little bit different, I can certainly recommend this. Um, I think George plans to put it up on drive-through for about five bucks. 
that's for the PDF. 250 pages, a groat's worth of grotesques. And uh, thank you for sending that to me, George. Cheers. Well, that's about enough from me, I think. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for your calls. If you want to leave me a message, please contact me via the anchor link in the description. You can always email me or leave me an audio message at spencer.freeforall at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page for Keep Off the Borderlands. You can find me on Twitter and MeWe on the Audio Dungeon Discord and various other places on Discord as Free Thrall. I'd also like to thank TJ Drennan for the wonderful music he provides. And it just remains for me to say, take it away, TJ. Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.